don't want me to sing, do you, for Christ's sake? We're rolling. This is the good one. Take five. Most most folks most most folks uh, most 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 folks once again. You're experiencing performance anxiety with me, Mark Shea. This week we feature Mark Dancy. Mark played guitar in the 90s for the band Big Chief from Detroit. He's also an artist. You may recognize the cover art he did for Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger album. We talk about life on the road in the 90s and how the underrated album Mac Evans' Skull Game developed from a book that was passed around the tour bus. We talk about his art and what he's been doing since the band stopped playing in the mid-90s. Here's Mark Dancy. So I should say something like, this is Mark Dancy on performance anxiety. Yeah. Or, you say, uh, yeah, Mark or Dancy a better version. Like, this is Mark Dancy, and we're speaking on performance anxiety. Kind of funny story involving one of your uh, big chief bandmates I uh, tell me a couple of years ago you know you know Robert Roth and the band truly well yeah they uh, they were on tour for the I think it was the 20th anniversary of fast stories for kid coma and um, they were they were touring and they came to DC so I I'd, yeah yeah I told Robert that uh, I was planning on coming to the show it was in a little tiny club in DC and um, and, uh, I get to the show and, um, Robert and I are talking and so, uh, he's got to go and finish packing up the van and all to get everything going. So I decided to go buy a, a shirt. So I'm buying a shirt and, um, I get, I get everything done and taken care of and, and, um, I go to pay the guy, the, the guy at the merch table and it, we're having a little bit of an issue and, and we're, we're chatting and talking and, and all. And for some reason, the internet connection wasn't really good. So I'm like, Credit card took a couple of times to go through, and it turns out that was Phil Durr. Yeah, Philly D went on that tour. I had no idea it was him. I was I was friends on Facebook with him too because what I would do uh, when I first got onto Facebook was follow people in the bands that I liked that were weren't really active anymore to see what they were doing just because I like to support yeah. them and I always like the music that you guys make like Big Chief, Truly, and all. So so I would try to make friends with some of you guys on, on, on Facebook and all. And, uh, so Phil was one of those guys cause I always really, really liked big chief. And, uh, it turns out it was him, but I didn't know what he looked like. Cause he never, ever posted any pictures on Facebook of, of him. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I only found out afterwards. He's, he said something about, Oh yeah, it was great being on the road with truly. And so I was like, wait, were you at the DC show? He's like, yeah, I was a man in the merch table. So, oh, holy crap. I, I met you. So, so that that's my big. Billy chief. G is very. I mean, he's active, but the funny thing is, is like what he'll do is like he, he'll come to the studio and contribute these things to other people's records. There was a um, was something that happened recently. There was a band in town that had their record release, and he was telling me a story about how when one of the band members was playing the, the record back to him, he kept pointing out to Phil that that was Phil playing. Like he had to point it out to Phil cause he'd forgotten. He just comes in and just like does these one off, you know, these little, these, these great ideas, these little brilliant things. He, and he That's just gives awesome. them away. He just like gives them away and then he forgets about it, you know? Oh, and then, then other people have to point it out to him. Jeez. So how did you guys uh, all meet up? So there's there's you, there's Phil, Barry, uh, Mike, and you, right? That's everybody in Big Chief. Yeah. So Barry, you know, he was in the Necros. Right. And they were way ahead of everybody. I mean, they, they, they are a band that doesn't really get as much credit as they should because they were, you know, when they were in high school, they were already touring and, and putting out records oh. way before anybody else, way like even before all the hardcore uh, thing happened. So they would come to town. I, I lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and 
the Necos would come through and we would play, we would open for them. So Barry was always really, uh, encouraging, uh, really like, you know, like saying, you know, how, tell me advice and how to do things. Cause we had a band and we were going to put out our records and we wanted to, to, you know, play shows and go on tour and stuff like that. So Barry was always supportive and, uh, uh, encouraging of us of doing stuff. So he was the first guy that I knew. And then, uh, later on I was at, in Ann Arbor, I went to university of Michigan and I was there and, uh, Barry was there and Mike Danner was there and he had been in laughing hyenas. He had been some, in some bands before that. And okay. he was out of that band and wanted to start something else. So I actually started playing with Mike, just Mike and I playing and trying to figure out what we could do. And he said, well, uh, you know, Barry had an idea of getting a band together to do something different. He was still in the Necros, but was, had some ideas of like doing things that, that the Necros weren't doing. And there was this uh, a friend of theirs called Matt O'Brien who uh, had been in bands like he had been when the when the hardcore scene was starting. He was younger than everybody, but he was there. He was like, you know, I think he was like you know, like a 12 year old when the, <laughs> when the hardcore shows were out happening, but he was there, you know, he was there from the wow. start. So they said, Matt was moving back from San Francisco. So we got together and started trying to, you know, started to write songs. And that was in 1988. And we saw, um, basically, we needed something more than I could be, you know, <laughs> luckily we got Phil to be in the band. He was a really good guitar player. I could just be the rhythm guitar, you know, and Phil was, Phil was, could play, you know, he, he, you know, when we record, he would say, he would see immediately as he'd heard something that he would come up with like three parts in his head that oh, he wow. could add to something. I'm just like, here's the riff. I'm playing this riff. And this is it. And it would be like, you know, all this extra stuff on top of it. So he added a lot. One time we played a show without Phil. Like, you know, we'd started without Phil and we wrote some of the songs without Phil. But once there's only one time when we played a show without Phil because we had to go into Canada from from Seattle. We had to go into Vancouver. Okay. And so theoretically it should have been okay to you know it should have been uh you know nothing nothing that hard to try to play but it was like like we were missing half of our like missing our uh, a lag or something oh, like yeah. even though i'm on one side of the stage and i only pay attention to, you know i mostly pay attention to mike i'm not really taking my cues from phil but without him in the band it was just like <laughs> like just half there and it was like uh. physically harder <laughs> to try to like to I'm trying to play harder to try to compensate for Phil not being there. Oh, and it was just exhausting and, and bad. Yeah, it's it's funny as you realize how important somebody is after they're gone, even if it's yeah, just for one yeah. show. So, so yeah, yeah. Were you in any bands before you, Big Chief? Yeah, so I was in a hardcore band called Born Without a Face, which was <laughs> that's a great started- name. Yeah, it was like a horror sh- horror name, you know. Yeah, and uh, we were we so we tried to start in high school. We tried to start playing in. We tried to start having a band in 1980, but we were it was so we were so incompetent that we would like try to play. We like try, you know like encourage ourselves. My brother and his friend, his, it, like uh, was the other guitar player, and we were just trying to figure out you know the, the the basics of you know what a band is, what you need for a band, and we were so incompetent that we would like you know get together on a Saturday, and it would just be so disappointing and so disastrous that we'd give up and break <laughs> up for a while. Then we'd come back, and this so this took years. It took years to finally till finally we got a drummer who was a musician he was a he wasn't a drummer he was a bass player but he was a musician that had rhythm and it took us until 1983 to be able to even play you know to be able to even play out to play a show so we had our first uh, show at the zoo <laughs> at a there's a band shell at the park at the zoo that you could you could rent the band shell so we had our first show finally in 19 19- at a zoo. So we were late. That's funny. Yeah, oh at the zoo. Gosh. So how did how did you so we kind of went through how you got 
together with Big Chief, but um, you guys had a really unique sound. I mean, you, you incorporated so many elephants, elephant elements. <laughs> I mean, maybe elephants too. I don't, I don't know. But uh, yeah, yeah, there was a, there was a, you know, there's obviously the hardcore, the rock element, but there's also the the, the funk and some soul and and, and a little hip hop and some R and B and. Was that just the, the way you guys worked together, or was that was that a, a, a concerted effort to add those elements to the music you were already making? So, so again, it was a thing of like, you know, so we started the band in 1988. So by that time, we'd already been through hardcore and, and were into all, all this other kind of rock, 80s um, underground music. You know, amphetamine, reptile, and oh, sub pop yeah. were out in those days, and we're starting. We're putting stuff out that was exciting. Like it was still, it was rock, but it was exciting, like punk rock, and it was independent. Uh, you know, putting those those uh, those singles out that they were putting out that was like exciting. Oh yeah. And, um, Mud Honey came to town and it was, it was great. It was like a hardcore show. You know, it was that kind of an exciting show. They came in 1988. Oh God. So, very, uh, that, their very first album, well, a collection of e- singles, I guess, with Super Fuzz with that, right? Yeah. Right around that time. So, <laughs> uh, but by that time, you know, Barry, Barry is a, a huge record collector and is really knowledgeable about music and about good music. And I would learn a lot from him. But by that time, he was listening to all this other kinds of music that he wanted to, to try to get to. And also, and had, you know, had listened to things like Funkadelic that was like, you know, it's a, what's kind of a, an interesting thing. I was recently reading something where... Iggy was talking about the Stooges and he was talking about Funhouse and uh, he was talking about how uh, Scott Ashton was really into Funkadelic. Like when they did Funhouse, he'd been listening to Funkadelic. And to me, that's the key to that's like the, the, the key there. Like he's spelling it out that that's what, you know, was cool about that record. And and. You know, like everybody, everybody always swore uh, allegiance to the Stooges. Like everywhere we'd go in the in the <laughs> world and in, in, in Europe, they, you know, like people could barely they couldn't even speak English, but they could say Stooges and MC5. Right. And they would say that, the, you know, that's the favorite band. But like they're missing the thing, like to, to understand part of why, you know, part of it, part of why the, the, those records were so great is because of like like funhouse is funky that's like part of the thing that's like a the part of the 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 unsung part of it that the people don't say that as much as they should because it it's such a groove so you know Barry was already really uh, knew a lot about that and knew a lot about funkadelic I learned about that from him and Mike D the drummer was really into hip hop had always been into listening to hip hop. That's what he would listen to. He wouldn't like when we drive around, he would be listening to that. That, that was his thing. Okay. So, so, but the thing was when we started, we couldn't play that kind of stuff. We couldn't, you know, we hadn't, I had no competence to be able to play that kind of stuff. It took a while and it took, you know, it took adding Phil into the band and it took a, it took even from where we started, it took a few years to be able to, to be better, to be able to attempt things like that. Like the time. So by the time we did that record called, uh, Mac Avenue skull game, which was supposed to be like all that stuff you just said, all thrown together. I we'd we'd gone. Well, we'd gone on tour with the Beastie Boys, and they had put out that that record called um, "Check Your Head," which was this right. thing where they just did anything they wanted. They just there wasn't one certain thing. You know, it was all this. You know, it, it would it'd veer from one thing to another. It'd veer from instrumentals to you know these these 
they had a punk song on there. They had all kinds <laughs> of things on that record. Yeah, that and we saw and- that they could get, you know, they could, yeah, they could do anything they wanted. And we saw, so we saw that like, why shouldn't we do that? Why shouldn't we have something that's like, uh, uh, you know what we when some we're at somebody's house listening to music, it'd be it'd go from one thing to another. It go to all that kind of stuff you said, all that kind of music you said when you brought this up. Yeah. So we tried to do something like that to do a you know a soundtrack record, like a fake soundtrack record that could have all these different styles of music and go from one thing to another and try try to do different things. Well, I, I so love that's a long winded, <laughs> long winded, you know, a long winded uh, answer to what you were saying. Well, that's trying right. to put put like a di- lot of different things together. Well, I, I can definitely hear the progression going through the albums from Chrome Helmet Face to Mac Avenue Skull Game and even even to, into Platinum Jive because um, some of some of the songs on Platinum Jive are even a little crazier than Mac Avenue Skull Game and it it. Uh, I can definitely hear that. I don't want to say a softening of the band, but more, a, a, the band getting more diverse in its playing. Like, uh, you can definitely hear the hardcore and punk elements in Chrome Helmet. I can hear more of the rock element, uh, classic rock element in, in Face with a little bit of the, uh, of hip hop maybe thrown in, uh, the last track on it, you know, Wasted on BC and all that. That's, that's a great song. But once you got into Mac Avenue Skull Game, I mean, that's, I liked Face, but I absolutely loved Mac Avenue Skull Game. I I would sit there and I'd listen to that album for like two years straight. Well, you know that's that's just such a funny record to me. It's just it was such a funny thing because what happened was the first time we went over to Europe, like we went there and we went to Phil's house. His parents are Germans, you know, like he's a German. He's yeah. a, he was he was born in Germany, but he grew up in Mexico city. So his first language is Spanish and he, (laughs) and he learned English from Spider-Man comics and he didn't move to U S until he was 13. So Phil came and, uh, when we went to, we first went to Germany in 1990, somebody had visited and had bought this airport paperback and left it at their house. Like someone had visited from the U.S. and had bought a book to read on the plane and had left it at their house. And we'd got on this tour and, and like hadn't brought enough to read. Like there wasn't, we hadn't thought about how thought this out about the how much downtime <laughs> there would be and the, you know the boringness of driving around. Right. So we had this copy of this book called Masquerade, which is uh, a book about a true story of uh, a psychologist. He was sort of an imposter psychologist in Detroit. And what happened was, like, as a psychologist, he would just tell people, just give them really bad advice. And he was like this eminent guy. He had a, he had a, a practice in a, in a, prestigious building in Detroit and he had all these clients, but he would like, you know, like he'd give guys advice. Like the guy, a guy would come to him and he was, who was gay and wanted to tell his wife and the, and the doctor would tell him not to tell, would tell him to like, keep it a secret. You know, like he would just give him bad advice and all this, all this kind of stuff like that. Meanwhile, he started living this double life where he picked up a prostitute in this part of town uh, you know, not very far from where his office was and, and had this whole other identity, like told the, told the prostitute that he, you know, it was this, this different name and this different guy. And he, and that he, it wasn't really about sex. It was like, like he, he would go and like spend time with this prostitute and her pimp was there and they were just, were getting money you know, like, like getting all this money out of him, but he was more like living this sort of sleazy life. Meanwhile, he was a prestigious, you know, doctor and had a, uh, you know, like a house in the, in the, the exclusive suburbs. Like he lived in this beautiful house and he had a beautiful wife, a young wife who looked up to him and thought he was really, you know, brilliant. And meanwhile, he had this, this sleazy thing going on the side in this, in the, in the, in the ghetto part of town in this that like uh you know high crime drug district 
uh, which is called the Cass Corridor. They've tried to rebrand the the area, and it's been gentrified, and they've rebranded it as Midtown, but it was called the Cass Corridor in those in, and people who, who are who've grown up here still call it that. Anyway, uh, he had this double life going in. It went on for years. And these guys, the, the, the pimp and the prostitute, were heroin addicts and they were getting money from the doctor. And they were, uh, you know, eventually they got like $30,000 out of him over years, you know, like just, just kept soaking him for money. So finally, what happened was the doctor wanted to cut off the, you know, change the rules. He wanted to cut off the, the, the flow of money and he got in a fight with pimp and the pimp was enraged. Like he did in the true story is he like knocked the pimp down. The pimp was this guy called John lucky fry, who was a biker (laughs) who, you know, like he got lucky, you know, like he, he was this, 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 this guy who who was living in living in this life and he was enraged that this this doctor knocked him over so he jumped up and took a baseball bat and smashed the guy's head in oh so then he's gosh. got a dead body you know in this house uh, and he's got to get rid of it so what he did was he dragged it into the bathroom and took his clothes off and took a he had a ginsu knife and he cut the guy up into pieces. He oh, cut him into, he cut, you know, his head and his arms and his uh, legs, all in his, you know, so he, in his feet and his hands, all cut up, and packaged him up like like in butcher paper, you know, like packaged oh, all the pieces gosh. up, and put him in the car. And he put his, but the, he put his head in a bowling ball bag. And so what he did was, <laughs> this was on a. A Sunday night. This happened on a Sunday. So on a Sunday night, he went around and and Monday morning is trash day. So what he did was drive around to various dumpsters and throw out the pieces of of the the guy into various dumpsters. Then he went to the girl and said, you know, we got to get out of here. So what he did was um, they're driving up north from Detroit up to up into northern Michigan and he stopped to get gas and like realized he'd left like a piece of one of the leg pieces in the (laughs) in the trunk so he threw it off you know he threw it off the the service drive down towards the expressway and he still had the head so they drove up north and he went to some his friend some friend of his had some property up north and he he was acting weird and he, he told him you know he did something and he he went in the woods and he buried the 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 head in the bowling ball bag oh so gosh. then he went back to detroit instead of just you know he, he basically he could have kind of gotten away with it but he went back to detroit to try to sell the doctor's car and somehow <laughs> things unraveled somehow and somehow it unraveled well how it unraveled was that his the guy on whose property he buried the thing at like told the cops that he did something crazy happened so the cops found the doctor's leg you know off on the side of the the freeway <laughs> yeah. then they went up north and they found his head cuz you know, here's the most identifiable piece of the guy but yeah. all the other stuff was gone all the other stuff was long gone like all the the you know the arms and the feet and the hands and everything like that were gone Gosh. So, uh, uh, he was caught and he went down like he, the, the, the prostitute, I think she got, she got off. It was all on him. He like, he took the whole thing and went to jail. And so the, the guy that wrote this book, uh, I'm, I want to give him credit and I can't remember his name. Lowell Caulfield. It's really a good book. It's called masquerade by Lowell, Lowell Caulfield. And amazing. I don't know why they didn't. Yeah, they should have made it into a movie. Like you can still find the book in, in, in you know, like at used bookstores. But and he knows about that we made a. He knows that we made a, a soundtrack to the movie. Oh, so like, really? We said this should be a movie. So we. So what I'm saying, the, what I'm getting back to is like we went to Europe. We had this Lowell Caulfield's book, and we passed it around as we were driving around, and everybody's reading the book and being like, "This is a crazy story," <laughs> you know. Like w- one guy would pass it around, and so it took like a few years, but we'd thought about that story, like that that should be a movie, and that we could, you know, if that was a movie, we should do the soundtrack. 
So that's the idea behind the Mac Avenue skull game. Um, uh, the title is Mac Avenue is a, is a street in Detroit, but you know, like we just thought it was funny that Mac is somebody's last name, but you know, Mac is a word for pimp. I just thought we thought that was funny, yeah, you know? Yeah. So we put that as the Mac Avenue and, um, Skull Game is from some other book that uh, <laughs> by Nathan Heard. She has read a lot. I, I but so that was the that's the whole record. The the record is that story that I just told you in order. So it, it goes that's... in, you know, like there's a theme for each of the main of the three characters, like it's a triangle. Mm-hmm. And that's the basis of the artwork for the thing too. It's a triangle. Like it's a, tri- it's a, you know, like a, a relationship between the doctor, the pimp and the, the prostitute. So all the artwork, that was like the basis for everything. Tri- this triangular thing that I made. And then, uh, there's all this other stuff I threw in there. Like, uh, you know, there's this, th- this thing of like the, uh, in, in Mexico city in the, the Aztecs, had built their main pyramid in the center of Mexico. Their main pyramid was built on the on the, the main square, and the pyramid's supposed to be like a, a model, like a the universe. You know, like there's a there's okay. two li- there's a there's a pyramid, and there's two little uh, altars at the top, and at the bottom of the pyramid, there's a famous stone that they found. This I think they found it in about 1970 you know, whatever, 1970, when they were doing some construction and they found this stone and the stone is a goddess who's cut up in, who's like lion, it's the, it's the moon goddess who's okay. been defeated by the God of war. And she's been thrown down at to, down to the bottom of the, the pyramid. And there's this, this stone that they found, they dug it, dug it up in the streets of uh, Mexico city, dug it up at the base of the, where the pyramid was. The, the Spaniards destroyed the, uh, the pyramid when they, when they conquered Mexico city. So, you know, it was lost, but they found it in 1970, whatever. Wow. And what I'm saying is it's this thing of the, this guy, the moon goddess cut up like the doctor was cut up in her hands, her arms, her, her, her head's cut off. So <laughs> that's my basis of the, of, you know, when you look at the uh, one of the little, what do you, I forget what they're called, like a little um, emblem, like one of the the, the artworks of the, of the in a, in a circle for the doctor. That's okay, my yeah. what I use. It's for it. So it's like just all this stuff. What I would see in the library, I'd learn. I'd like accidentally learn about that by just you know <laughs> you're, you'd find things in the find things that you don't know what you're, you don't know you're looking for by just going through the bookshelves and, oh, yeah. and, and learn things that way. Well, since you brought it up, you're also an illustrator. You did all the artwork for all the uh, big chief releases. And you also did the artwork for Soundgarden's bad motor finger album. So I want to, f- yeah, what, what came first for you, music or art? So I just always drew, I, uh, I drew since I was little and I didn't try to be, I didn't go to art school. I didn't try to, I, I, my, uh, upbringing told me that that was, uh, an impractical, uh, career, like something that mm-hmm. wasn't really a possibility. Right. And I never you know, like I never tried to do that. I never tried. It's, it's been to my detriment, you know, like I didn't go to art school. I, I had to learn everything backwards in the wrong way and take, you know, take all this extra time. But so what, <laughs> you know, but, but anyway, that's what happened. I, I didn't, I didn't learn that when I went to school at university of Michigan, they had a, uh, a, uh, humor magazine there called the gargoyle that was started in the 1909. So it had been an, you know, like this thing that they would let you do what you wanted. You could put anything you wanted in there. So that's where I could see my stuff in print. And, you know, I learned about how to put a magazine together, you know, how to just the basics of, of, of layout and and how to, how to get things printed. So basically I was doing that in those days. The other thing was also though, at the same time was 
doing flyers for for uh, my band, for the punk band, we were so excited about flyers, you know, like putting putting the word out or putting graphics out that we would put up posters or flyers for the band before we had a show you know like there wasn't i mean what i mean is there wasn't a show coming up it was just a flyer about our band that's <laughs> we were so, awesome. so excited to go flyering you know like so excited <laughs> to go like put our name up on the streets oh, you know it, didn't, it wasn't it wasn't for a gig it was just to put our name up and just letting so, everybody know you guys were here yeah yeah let people know we're here <laughs> so so that's what i was doing i was doing that uh, I did the magazine. I was, you know, looking at mad magazine, trying to draw like mad that, you know, I love mad magazine. And then later on I found out about zap and underground comics and I tried to, you know, do something in that spirit, you know, learn from that stuff. And like I said, when I was in college, uh, we, we worked on the magazine. And then when I got done with school, I didn't, my degrees in psychology. I didn't, all I knew, all I knew that I didn't want to do that. Like yeah. that's the one thing I knew that I didn't want to be a psychologist. Going yeah, I mean, psychology. they, they end up so, hanging out with prostitutes and getting cut up into pieces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, they end up with their heads cut yeah. off. So, yeah, that, that's true. So, uh, your your uh, style is really, really distinctive. There's a lot of bold lines and repetitive shapes and, and, and motion in, in a lot of your, your artwork. Who, who influenced you and where, where did that come from? Because I, when I see, I look at your website and I see your artwork or I look at a, a cover like, like Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger or anything by Big Chief, I know it's, it's Mark Dancy. I know it. How, how did you come up with your style, who your influence is? And, and uh, I guess that's where my question ends. So when I was growing up, I love Jack Kirby from, you know, in, in Marvel comics, mm-hmm. I would, I would try to draw like him. I'd loved mad magazine. I loved, you know, Jack Davis and that kind of stuff. All the Harvey Kurtzman and, uh, Bill Elder, all those guys in, in mad. And then I found out about zap and, and you know, the zap underground comics. Right, right. And those are the guys that I was, you know, I was trying to do comics. And then later on, when I started having trying to get things printed, I was trying to do, you know, trying to do color separations. And in the, in, for most of the time, I was doing those by hand. And what oh, I would wow. try to do is like have a really thick black outline to trap the colors so that like if they printed out of register, that they would still look OK. So there's there, that's one okay. reason. So I have a really thick outline. And the other reason is just because I would go over it obsessively until it was smooth because I wasn't able to do it in like one stroke. I would, do, I was like, I would say, say like, Oh, well, you know, my friend Terry Laban is a great cartoonist who had comics at, uh, in Fantagraphics. He had a couple different, uh, okay. uh, comics that he did for Fantagraphics and, uh, he was a few years older than me and had worked at the gargoyle and he gave me a lot of advice and he said that you need to get one needs to get a number two, uh, uh, sable brush as a, to be a, to, to ink your, your comics. So he gave me this advice. So I got the brush and I was trying to do, you know, tried to do like I saw that these guys had done, you know, ink their drawings and I couldn't do it in one fluid stroke. I couldn't, I had no, no Uh skill to do that, you know, the curve. So I would do it once, I'd do it over again, I'd do it over again until it was smooth. (laughs) So it'd be like, instead of being like this, 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 you know, graceful, you know, flowing line, it'd be this labored, (laughs) this labored thick thing that, you know, that finally bent to my will, but it, but it would trap the colors when you printed, you know, like in those days it would be this, you know, you could, you could pay, you could afford for like two colors. If you could have two colors, a black and another color, that was like, you know, splurging. You you could afford more than black and white. So it'd be like, in that case, this real thick outlines that I did, that you printed it and it would stay within the outlines. 
that's kind of what it was. Okay, so, so it was born out of necessity, but it, it looks it it leads for a, a bold image, and that's it, part of what 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 separated a lot of uh, or actually every Big Chief cover from anything else that I saw in that era, and uh, that's one of the, what drew me to Big Chief was mainly two things. One was the artwork, and the second was that the, your second full album. Uh, Face was on Sub Pop, and I saw it in the Sub Pop catalog because I was in college in ninety one, ninety two, and uh, I saw it come out in in one of their mail order things that they would send out. And I was in Rochester, New yeah. York, yeah, and uh, so I I went and found it, and I'm like, this is awesome. This this is the the artwork was completely different than anything I'd seen. So was the artwork that you did for Big Chief? Did were you volunteering for that, or did they just know you could do that? Or was it like just an outlet for you, or did they kind of make you do it? So no, I just I seize that I seize that position as the propagandist, <laughs> you know. Like so, part of the thing of when I got out of school, I started sending my comics around, and was rejected. And rightfully so, because they weren't good, you know, like, but at the time I was like proud and I was kind of like, well, screw them. You know, I'm not going to be, you know, (laughs) I'll put out my own thing. So that's why we started a magazine in the, in the, after I got out of comics or after I got out of college, we started a magazine. And part of the thing was so I could have a place to have my stuff printed. Nobody's going to print my stuff. So I had to you know, put my own thing out there and kind of the same thing when in the band, you know, I was just going to be like, I'm, I'm, I'm taking the job. I'm going to be the propaganda guy, you know? (laughs) So it'd be like, whatever, whatever jokes that the one thing about the thing is one thing about our band was that like, those guys are really funny, like Barry, Barry and Mike and Matt and, and Phil were just really funny. They really could riff on something. And so it'd be like, there's all these kind of jokes and, you know, in the band, there's so much boring downtime. And the thing, the, the, the idea that the fact or the fact that like, if you're in some traffic jam in, in Germany for, you know, sitting there for an incredible amount of time. Like you can't even believe that you're not going to not like a 14 hour drive from someplace. The idea, the, the fact that, that there's people in the band that are, that are hilarious that can riff on stuff. It makes, makes the whole thing bearable, (laughs) you know? So, So it'd be like, there's like a, there's like a, you know, whatever the, the, philosophy of the band was like something that that I, that was a group thing that I would put into I would make the graphics for all right and they would they you know they they I was fortunate that they would you know sign it off to me they would just let me do it <laughs> well the, you mentioned the, the sense of humor and that's really comes through in, in the music and Mac Avenue skull game um Platinum Jive. The, the, some of the songs are a, are a riot. Like Barry song, simply Barry. That I, it, it sounds like. Um, I, God, I don't even know what this. It sounds like something I would have heard on like a KTEL record, but in a good way. I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> I, I, that's that track. So, it, it just stands out out of that whole album because <laughs> that, that whole album, it, it, there's a lot of heavy, good stuff in it. But then there's this like, like, um, I don't say Muzaki feel, but I, maybe that's the only way I can, I can get across the way the, the way it sounds. So the idea, the idea with that particular song was that Barry and our friend Eddie, uh, uh, Eddie Alterman, who played with our band, and he was in that band called Slot, and he's a really great drummer. Oh, yeah, so no Slot, yeah. Eddie, Eddie, and, yeah, Eddie and Barry had this this running joke that they were going to form a band, or there was going to be a, an R&B band called Tender, which is simply going to be like <laughs> a, a woodblock 
and like uh, a like a, a hi hat would be the only the only uh, <laughs> rhythm track. Just a man, you know, a, a duet between a man and a woman screaming their love for each other. <laughs> so, yeah, basically, Barry uh, did that did that version of that for simply Barry. And so the idea with that whole record was that it was supposed to be greatest hits from different, you know, like this 30 year career of the band, oh, you know, yeah, our yeah. six year career of a band that, that was supposed to be a 30 year career. <laughs> anyway, that was just supposed to be like from his solo record, you know, like this, this solo record. Yeah. yeah. Each of you guys <laughs> had a solo, uh, a, a solo record piece on that, I think, didn't you? Yeah. What, 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 yeah, so that was, was a, yeah, like there was they were all all the songs were from made up records from you know from 1969 to 1999. And, but the and album came out in what like 94, it, 95. Yeah, it came out in 94. That was that was that yeah. was my favorite thing. It was 69 to 99, and the album came out in 95. Yeah. That that just I love yeah. that. So yeah, so the idea was just that you know like the way that kiss would have everybody gets a solo record, right. you know, like it'd be their records and then everybody got a solo record. Well, the cool thing about that for me, besides the, uh, the, the joke of uh, the album coming out in 95 and it going to 99 on the cover was, uh, inside the, uh, the CD booklet, you guys went all out. You actually had album covers for your fake solo albums. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. was amazing. We and got I- it. The, the one that cracked me up was well, we Barry's had that guy, little nice price sticker on it. Like it was given the cutout. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We made all these fake, you know, fake record covers. And then we had a guy who was a professional, like he was a product photographer who, who was used to taking like, you know, gleaming pictures of, of products for, for ads. He was, yes. uh, you know, like an advertising photographer. And we went to his studio and just made all those sets of the fake, you know, the dummy record covers and he to look like these little vignettes of, 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 so it was like seven inches, LPs, eight tracks, cassettes. And like the futuristic one was mine of CDs. Like that was the future, you know, the, the, the distant future of, of CDs. That was oh, that, which is hilarious now. Now that they're going out, uh, they've gone out. Yeah, I know. Best Buy, you can't even buy them at Best Buy anymore. Not that I was buying any of my CDs at Best Buy anymore, but you, you can't go out and buy them anymore. That was one of my favorite things, and that's uh, what I used to grow up. Well, let me rephrase that. I used to go to the record stores when I, when I was growing up, and and just thumb through yeah. for hours and hours. And man, that doesn't exist anymore. It's terrible. So. Let's go back to Mac Avenue Skull Game for a second. One of the awesome parts about that is your collaboration with Thornetta Davis. How did you guys meet up with her, and uh, how did she agree to do that? Because that doesn't seem like—I mean, I don't know Thornetta personally, but you know, she's she's a blues singer, and you guys got her to sing, yeah. you know, play the part of a prostitute on your, a, a fairly heavy album. How did that happen, Thornetta? was already working as a backup singer at white room studios where we recorded and Al Sutton was our engineer and he had worked with her before and he actually had her come in for a song on face. She, um, she sings on fresh vines. Right. So that was the first time we had her. So she sings on that one. And then when we, we, uh, uh, did Mac Avenue, we wanted her to be the voice of the, the prostitute called Sonica. And you know what? I found out that there's some, they made some show on the CBC called Sonica. Really? <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I yeah. know that. Uh, anyway, what was I going to say? I oh, would... Sonica, by the way, that's the name of the prostitute. That's the, you know, that's the name that we gave the prostitute. Right. Her name was Dawn. Reality. Her name was <laughs> Dawn. Anyway. Sonica's much uh, better. Yeah. Anyway. We had Darnetta come to sing this sing, so she had a theme, and Barry wrote this sort of a sensitive song. It's really good. The lyrics are all by Barry. He wrote this song for her.
when we got done with the record, we did a performance of the record from start to finish. We did it, you know, we the first um, like as a record release. We did had Thernetta come and had a had uh, backup, uh, you know, horns come and did the whole oh, thing. Wow! And then that was fun. That was fun to like, play, you know, have it all in order like that. And then we went to Los Angeles that sometime around there, sometime in the fall and, and had like, we didn't play the whole record, but we had Thornetta come and we saw that that was like this really kind of a cool thing. Do you know in the old days and like when you listen to big band uh, records that the singer was not the thing, you know, it was the band was the thing and they right, would bring yeah. out the singer, you know, whoever the featured singer was and they'd bring the, you know, the singer out for a little while for a few songs and then they'd take them back. Yeah, so yeah. like, it felt like, you know, like we had this, this, this special, you know, this star guest where we had Thernetta come and we, so we'd have her come, uh, like we went to Europe and had her come along too. And it was kind of the same thing. Like oh, we, cool. we, like this secret weapon, and I know that Barry was intimidated by it because she's such a great singer, you know, yeah, but I would yeah. tell him that's not the deal. It's not like she's like a special thing. And you're like, you're the, the you know, if you see George Clinton, he's not the best singer out there. He's the master of ceremonies and brings out all these people and has this running thing going and like it can be a three hour show for uh, if you see Funkadelic play oh, and yeah. it's just great because it's just fun and he just keeps this party going. So I, I, I tried to tell him like, you can't, you know, it's not like you're not trying to like, uh, try to compare yourself to Thernetta. That's not what it's about. It's, right, it's right. she's like this special star that comes in. She adds to the thing, does some songs. It's only, it just adds to it. It makes it more interesting. It's good. Going back a little bit farther, I guess I'm doing this in reverse. You guys had a lot of songs that were kind of gritty and almost singing and writing songs about like the underbelly of society, pimps and prostitutes and, uh, you know, your song Lot Lizard and Clown Pimp and stuff off the off of Chrome Helmet. And does that just come from being in, in the Detroit area or, or was that were you guys just focused on, on maybe bringing a little bit of humor to that or, or what, is there a reason that that seems to be a recurring theme? So the, like I said, the one thing was that we had, we had this whole, uh, soundtrack idea to make for, you know, for the, for the Mac Avenue skull game. That was just because, because <laughs> it's more fun to write about that stuff you know it's okay. just more it's funnier and it's more fun and and uh it made it more interesting i guess it's like whatever you you know the guy that wrote the three penny opera was not you know he wasn't he he didn't live in the underworld you know right, like right. like uh know like john gay did not live in the underworld and and bertolt brecht was not you know like a, a gangster and didn't you know like kurt vile was they were not gangsters they they were musicians and they were you know writing something for a music hall thing but it was more you know they did this thing to be like have the main characters be pimps and prostitutes and and have it you know, have have a whole opera dedicated to them instead of like it didn't have to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, noble families or whatever. Right, right. You know, like these these kind of noble families. These stories about like uh, nobles and princes and stuff like that. That you know that was from a far off land. It's like here are our main characters are these lowlifes. And they, why not? Why not have, you know, like they have their, their themes and their songs and their, their opera, their drama. It's kind of like, it's, it's really a lot like the, the idea behind the, um, the three penny opera, you know, that, that was their idea. Okay. Let's, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I got a little distracted. I got some fly buzzing around my head right now. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. Oh God. That's how clean trash has happened. <laughs> All right. Uh, how did the Soundgarden 
cover art come to be? You were tapped to do the, the, the cover art for Bad Motor Finger. How did, how did you get that opportunity? So we were fans of Sub Pop. We were fans of what they were doing in 1988. They were doing something interesting that was also like a Detroit thing. We saw that they were like, they were looking at MC5 Stooges, you know, that, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. the stuff that was going on in Seattle. And they were, it was, a, it was interesting and it was exciting at that time. So Soundgarden came and we played a show with them and like, like, you know, met them and gave them our sort of propaganda, like our, copies of our magazine and shirts and stuff like that. And so they knew about us and, you know, we played the show with them and they knew about us. And for whatever reason, I don't know. I really don't know why. When we went out to Seattle for the first time, we played with them in 1989. We went to Seattle and uh, played a show out there with Tad. And those guys were at the show, Kim and Ben and, uh, Matt was there and they were really good guys. They were really, you know, really cool to us. And they just asked me to do it. And I don't know why I, you have to ask them. I don't know why they (laughs) thought I should do it. I don't know why they thought of me for that. So, so there's that record. That record is like, you know, bad motor finger is, you know, the idea is like, uh, you know, like bad motor scooter, but a bad, like kind of like bad finger, and so that's that's what the design is. It's like a flip off finger and there's 12 of them for the 12 uh, songs on the record. And it's oh, kind of a okay. jagged electrical, you know, electrical uh, design. And, you know, they liked it. They they use it still. They still, you know, they still were using it, you know, recently when they when they uh, when they reformed. So they got a lot of use out of it. Oh yeah, was it? Was it, it became the it became the logo for the band, not just for that record. Yeah, yeah, and it, it was. Uh, I mean, that's one of the. I guess I'm looking here right now. It says it was one of the 100 top selling albums of '92. It was certified platinum in '93, sold a million copies within the early '90s, and double platinum in uh, April of '96, which is two million copies, I guess. Uh, was it weird to be on tour with, with Big Chief and seeing? your artwork on this album that's that's breaking this this band and into into the stratosphere well see that i couldn't even remember that kind of stuff like to me that's always the least interesting thing like when you hear numbers like that or like you know what you know what's wrong is like the only time they talk about stuff on the news, the, the only time they talk about culture on the news will be like, they'll say, this movie opened this past weekend and it broke a record of a zillion dollars. The, right. broke the previous uh, record of half a zillion. Like, <laughs> it doesn't even mean anything. It's just a number. And it's, it's, it's like they can't even talk about it unless they talk about, you know, numbers and money. And yeah. it's kind of like... So, like, it doesn't even register. It's, it just kind of doesn't, you know, it's not interesting. It doesn't say, like, that movie opened and it sucked. You know, <laughs> or that movie opened and it was great. It was hilarious because whatever. Like, they can't even say that. Right, but now... <laughs> I got I to gotta say something. You know, like, that's the only time anything like that comes on the radio. And uh, so, I guess, going back to what you said... Like, I didn't even know that. All, all I did, all I know is like, I got to see them one time um, when that record came out. I went, to, I drove up to Cleveland and they were playing something on a Sunday. And they'd done something where they put the, 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 the artwork on scrims that took up the whole stage. So you couldn't see their amps. They had, you know, everything was covered. So it was just like a huge backdrop of the, of the repeating design as if it was some huge fascist (laughs) party rally of the symbol. Cause it looked like this, you know, like this, (laughs) this power symbol, you know, and they had it across the repeated across the thing. 
It was pretty cool. I didn't even have a picture of it, though. Like, I saw it, and it's like, gee, I wish I had a picture of it. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, recently, you know, when they reformed, because they were still using it, I could finally have a picture of it as their backdrop, because they used it as a backdrop. So I could see, like, you know, it's the big backdrop that they use, and it's kind of, it's pretty cool, because it's like, I made it, they're flying up, a, you know, like 100 feet high behind them. That's That's wild. pretty cool. That's That's like... Um, you know, like if you consider it like pop culture is this big pile of junk that's been, we've been putting into it, you know, mm-hmm. like this thing, uh, everybody's been adding to, and we stand on it and throw something up higher. That's my little piece of it. <laughs> that's my little, you know, my little, uh, a bit to the accumulation Your contribution you know, like of, of, pop the, culture. of the background of our, you know, of pictures around us. That's my little thing. Everything else I do. Everything else I've done, like all the stuff we've been talking to that we've been talking about on, on this podcast, you'd have to like do an explanation. You know, you have to explain it. <laughs> well, it's got to be to me. We had this we had this idea of, of doing a, a reprint book of motor booty. And the idea was that it would have to be the annotated motor booty because it would have to have like scholarly notes in this <laughs> in the margins to explain everything because it's completely you know, it's completely obsolete. It's completely, yes. <laughs> you know, so far in the past and it doesn't mean anything. So you'd have to, you know, you'd have to do this now, Mark. You'd have to be like, who's Mark Dancy? What was this band? What was grunge? What was hardcore? <laughs> it's all, it's all, you know, it's all obsolete. It's all so far in the past. Yeah. But it- the Soundgarden thing. You know, if people know that. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's got to be, it, for me, if, if if I were in your shoes, it would just kind of blow my mind to be walking around and seeing some teenager, even now, because it, like you said, when after they reformed, they used the, 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 the artwork over and over again, to see, you know, teenagers now wearing Soundgarden shirts with the design that you created on it. That, that to me, would just kind of, it would be a very proud moment for me, but it would also be kind of bizarre. So, uh, I, I can't imagine doing something. I, I was a photographer for years and years. I went to college for it and I never did anything as impactful as that. So my hat's off to you because your artwork is, is well, fantastic. And that's a, a piece that's, well, that's living on. No, no, thank you, Mark. But you know, like you got it again, you got to just keep it in perspective. It's like, it's a logo for a, for it's like you're like I'm the guy that did the label on the bottle (laughs) and the the label you know like the label on the bottle that people like like people you know people wanted to get a tattoo of the label of the bottle that's kind of what it is so you know just you know it's just kind of it's more funny than anything else but like I said that's that's it that's what that's the contribution that well it's a great contribution so what what are you doing now are you still making any music or are you just focused on your artwork uh, what are you up to lately so it came to a point of that I needed to be to try to be really to try to be as good as I can at something instead of being divided into being like well I can't work on art because we got to go on tour and I can't you know I can't you know, get better at guitar because I got to go home and, uh, do the artwork for the record. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a divided thing. And I was never going to be a great guitar player. You know, like you come to it, it was more like I was going to be to do my job in, in, in the band, you know, like to hold up my end of the band, (laughs) try to be good at that. But I was never going to be, you know, no one's going to ask me to be on their record like Philly D because, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I don't have anything to contribute. I was just like, I was going to do that. So it, it came to a point of like, there's no, there's just not that much time. There's just not, we just don't have that much time. So I, I was trying to like be, try to be better at, making pictures you know to try to be better you know sometime around forget what year that was sometime around there after we got done with the band phil gave me a set of oil paint and i was kind of like you know i just kind of had this this uh joking attitude about even about art you know when i it was kind of like 
trying to do things uh, in a punk rock way, in a low budget way, and not to really take it that seriously, even though I was spending my life on it, yeah. if that makes any sense. It, it so does. then it became a thing like, well, it becomes a thing of like, you can't, you can't just be, you know, not, I don't mean insincere, but you can't, you got to like really try to do something. You got to really try to be something. And so Phil got me oil paints. I tried to start learning how to oil paint. Again, it's taken so many years of trying to get better at this thing, you know, trying to learn this stuff that I didn't learn, just trying to get better at it. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's this thing where it's just an ongoing work and struggle. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, just I try to get better at it. I understand that. Um, you, you, to this day, you don't sound like you're, you're real confident in your musicianship. Did you get a, a would you, did you get any performance anxiety while you guys were touring or recording? No. Um, so I had this idea when I was in high school, I was on the track team and in, in the races, I would never look at the other, my opponents. I would never look at them because it would, this, this thing where I didn't want to give them power. Like I didn't want to give them the power of like them existing or them okay. being a threat to me. Oh, wow. So when I'd run the race, like I would never even look at them and whatever I, yeah, <laughs> I would win or I'd lose or I'd, mostly I would lose, but like, <laughs> you know, like, but, but whatever, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like be psyched out. It was like this thing not to be psyched out. Okay. So when we started playing shows, it was a similar thing. Like I wouldn't never look at the audience. I would just be like, uh, this thing, like, we're just going to do our thing like we always do. And, uh, it was a thing like to just to kind of concentrate, you know, to concentrate, to be like, we're going to do a thing like we always do. It doesn't matter if anybody's here or not. And what was funny is like, you know, especially early on is like, don't think that we didn't play for the bartender many a time. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's kind of like, you know, like there's nobody there anyway, but it's this thing to be like, either there's a lot of people there, like whatever. I, I wasn't going to be. And after, you know, that was, that's just when we started, when we first started, that's kind of what was my approach to be like, you know, as if it was something that was going to put me off. And then, it didn't matter. You know, after, after that, it wasn't like, it, they weren't like, it wasn't like it was a competition. They were my opponents. You know? <laughs> it was a different thing. And it could just be, it could just be relaxed and it was funny. You know, like after that, it was just, cause again, we play a show. If people, you know, once you start playing, if, even if, if they, if they like you or if they hate you, if they like you, it's great. It, it gives you this energy. And if they hate you, it's just going to be like, we're just going to get this over with, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, we're just going to do it and we'll get it over with. And and if if they like you, we're going to play more, you know, like it's, it's kind of the thing is ne- it's, it's a, you know, it wasn't a thing to be nervous about. Well, one of my biggest uh, regrets is that I never got a chance to see big chief live. You guys were one of the bands I always wanted to see and I could never catch you guys. I was, I was living in New Jersey at the time and, Either I had something going on oh, when you yeah. were coming around, or, or or there was for some reason I could just never seem to catch you guys, and I was I'm always annoyed about that. And I've seen two live clips of Big Chief on YouTube, and that's it. And they're not even full songs; they're like two minute clips of you guys playing in Italy, I think. So it's well, uh, <laughs> you know that that's a mixed thing, you know, like if <laughs> you know, like he. For, in my case, maybe these things should be forgotten, but like <laughs> you, that's the thing of YouTube. You can, you can't escape your past anymore. No. You know, like they put you put something out there and it's out there forever. Yeah. So yeah, the nineties are still alive on YouTube. Uh, well, and, and sometimes that's, that's awesome. Sometimes maybe not, but where, uh, what's your website? So if, if anybody wants to check your artwork out, where can they do that? Okay. So all this old stuff that we were talking about, is at illuminado.us, I-L-U-M-I-N-A-D-O.us. That is all the graphics, all the stuff that we were talking about, all the stuff from the ancient history, right. <laughs> all the stuff we're talking about, and, and, and the new stuff, but, you know, that, that's what we're talking about. 
all this of my oil paintings are at markdancy.com. All right. Keep them separated. Uh, I definitely encourage everybody to check you out because uh, the, the graphic stuff that you've done is is striking and it's it's very very unique and and, and I absolutely I've loved your artwork from the beginning. So, uh, Mark, thank you for so, for coming on. I really do appreciate you taking some time out of your evening and spending it with me on performance anxiety. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for taking the interest. I appreciate it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.